Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee as you're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with W. Michael Gear, author and archaeologist from Cody, Wyoming, United States. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here, Otis. When did you first start to work as an archaeologist? Oh, gosh. Let's see here. I was, as an undergraduate, I was uh, majoring in physical anthropology. That was my specialty. And the university had a, a emergency contract to go and, and excavate a power line out in western Colorado, and away I went. So all of a sudden, I went from, from being a bone guy to, uh, to a rock guy. And was this about the time that you started to take an interest in prehistory? Oh my gosh, no. My interest in, in prehistory and anthropology in particular was kicked off. It was, this was in 1964. I must have been like nine years old. Been left home alone, and National Geographic ran that, that classic, iconic episode where Louis Leakey was in Olduvai Gorge and went down and picked up the, the skull for by hominid nine, turned, uh, we now know as, as Zinjanthropus or Australopithecus boise. And at the time, they did a facial reconstruction. And, you know, you can st- I can still hear Richard Kiley's voice when he says, and now, for the first time in two million years, we will look into the, to the face of a human ancestor. And this thing turned, and it looked at me, and those eyes just kind of, it, it was one of those magical moments where I was just transfixed. Of course, it scared the hell out of me, and, and I was immediately under the couch. But that's where my real interest, especially in, in physical anthropology, paleoanthropology, and human origins was, was really born. Did you think about becoming a physical anthropologist or a primatologist at some point? Oh, yeah. When uh, I began my university education, I was going to be the, the next Richard Leakey, and I was headed for Africa. Did you eventually go there, or were you sidetracked into American prehistory? Oddly enough, I, I didn't go uh, to actually do anthropological work. I, Kathy and I both were, were touring in Africa uh, because of the prehistory books. Um, that was We were sent there by our, our publishers on book tour, both to uh, South Africa, Namibia, and to Kenya. Was there a large following of your books there at that time? Yeah, there there were. I mean, keep in mind that we have 17 million copies of our of our novels about prehistory in print worldwide. We've been translated into 29 languages that that we at least know of that haven't been pirated. And so our readership is is really huge, and this is one of the things that fiction can do for anthropology and archaeology in particular, is to allow people to have an insight into what it is that we do as professional archaeologists. I liked also that at the beginnings of your books, they each started with an epilogue where it's modern day and the archaeologists are investigating something which would then lead into the historical or prehistorical part of the book. What would you say were some of the highlights of your career as an archaeologist? Oh my gosh, all of it, Otis, all of it. 
uh, this is is interesting for both Kathleen and myself because at this stage of the game, you know, most of the people that we were in graduate school with are our colleagues in the field in the late seventies, early eighties. All these people are are now talking about retirement and what they're going to do next with their lives. And the fire in the belly has gone dead, especially people who did the tenure tract in academia and a lot of the people who went to work in, in the, the federal government. Uh, they're just burned out. And for us, every day, especially right now, is a miracle. I mean, this is a marvelous time to be alive as an anthropologist. I think it's an interesting time for academia in general, particularly the last, let's see, the last 10 15 years, the internet has really changed the way that education and research is disseminated. I think if we went back 30 years in time, there was the print media, there was television, but we didn't have the, the circulation that we have now where anyone who is not even at a university or museum can get access to some degree or a lot better degree now than it would have been in the past. Uh, I think it's an interesting time for, for education and a wider dissemination of what we do. Yeah, it is. Um, a lot, there's a lot of information which is now currently just I mean, literally available at your fingertips about archaeology. On the other hand, one of the things that does concern both Kathleen and myself is that so much of the older material is not available to young scholars who just use the internet. Uh, especially, um, for example, we've done several books, a lot of books that are, are centered in the Southwest uh, at the end of the Chaco period and the beginning of the Mesa Verde period, where a lot of the references that we use are the original works from people like Bandelier, Earl Morris, uh, Lowey, people like that, they're all hidden away in journals, in old Bureau of American Ethnography volumes. And modern archaeologists seem to be absolutely ignorant of the incredible value from those early monographs and articles. Do you think that it's because a lot of them haven't been digitized and they're just they're physically not available or people just aren't interested in, in them or just haven't heard about them? They haven't heard about them. Um, at, here we go. Uh, old fart talking, I guess. But we keep seeing, especially if you go out to uh, the Society for American Archaeology meetings, where young graduate students are reinventing the same wheel that was, was invented you know, 40, 50 years ago. And simply because some of the, the research is old does not mean that it's no longer extraordinarily pertinent. Now, yeah, granted, you have to, to pick through because our understanding of these cultures has increased drastically, especially through studies of things like iconography, um, integrating a lot of the, the cultural data. We have a lot better understanding through this magnificent technology we have for palynology, for, for soils, for, for fauna, for ancient DNA. But at the same time, a lot of these guys, uh, you go back to someone like Wetherill in the, in the Southwest, 
I mean, dang, he was there. He was there when they opened up the rooms. He was, you know, walked onto some of these sites and was, you know, the first white guy to actually really re- record these things. So there's a, a ton of information that you have to sort through, but still look at the basic data and it's a gold mine. In the Southwest, were a lot of these sites identified due to public works? Oh, um, you have people like Nordenskjold and Pepper who were sent out by the American, Earl Morris himself, were sent out by the major museums back East that they were doing the funding and mostly it was pot hunting. They wanted really nice museum specimens and to uh, collect some of this stuff before it was essentially looted away and vandalized. But that's that's in the at the turn of the, the 20th century. Then you get into the, the 1930s and the Great Depression, and we had something in, in the United States called the Work Progress Administration, the WPA. And essentially the government paid people to go and excavate archaeological sites, um, especially in the Southwest with the big pueblos there, but also in the the eastern United States, a lot of the big mound sites were excavated as WPA projects just to make work. And who were doing the excavations? Uh, Archaeologists were in charge, but uh, they hired local people to come and actually do the, the shovel and wheelbarrow work at that point in time. So that those WPA projects actually laid down a lot of the original uh, archaeological theory that we have and you know, basic cultural chronologies. So they, they laid the groundwork for everything that, that we've done later. A lot of it we have, have overturned as new information comes up, but that's the way science works, especially archaeology. Well, I guess that even today a lot of CRM is still generating large amounts of data that often aren't being put to full use. I know that this is the case in a lot of places. I think it's actually a resource that could be used, particularly for uh, graduate students that want to do, not to, they don't want to excavate a site, but they want to do large scale things, looking at uh, environmental interaction or looking at intersite connections. I think that these large amounts of data that exist, whether they're in the forms of reports, unpublished or published, or in the form of articles, Essentially, it's a resource. It's a data resource that could be used for large-scale research projects or investigations. Oh, yeah. It's, it's huge. Um, for, for your listeners out there, this is what we call the gray literature. And it's uh, generated after archaeological research, research is done, um, surveys, testing, mitigation of, of archaeological sites that will be damaged. And it's written up by what we call contract archaeologists or cultural resource management specialists. And usually it's given to a federal agency who has oversight, whether it's the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Reclamation, or whoever. And it is not published, per se, for public consumption, mostly because it has what's considered to be critical information as to where like sites are located mm-hmm. and in order to help protect the resource uh, the literature isn't widely dis- disseminated however for academicians for students for graduate students they can usually 
access these reports um, simply through through asking and providing their, their credentials and their curriculum data. Can other CRM companies also request general data for a region? Uh, not only can they, they are encouraged to do so. Um, if you're going to go into an area to do a project where previous companies have been working, you have to do something called a, a file search to to determine what has actually been surveyed in that area, what they found, and those reports are usually available through the consulting firm as well as through the federal government. Does that present on a map form? I know in some parts of Canada in CRM, the province maintains, it's a database, but it's also a geographical database. And if I say, well, I'm going to investigate this area, show me everything within uh, 50 kilometers or everything within 200 kilometers, and it just pops up all in the map. And I, if I wanted, I could download all of them or a lot of them are just PDF files that were generated after other CRM stuff. Is that that way it works in most of the states? Yeah, in the, the states, usually the grand scheme, the overview is, is curated by the State Historic Preservation Office, the, the SHPO. Uh, otherwise, you kind of have a mishmash of, of different federal agencies that are involved with, with different things so the reports can be scattered here, there, and everywhere. Oh, I see. So you might have to ask a couple of different agencies to get the full list of everything that might be relevant. Correct. How much of the history, cultures, and events that occur in your novels do you think would already be familiar to the average adult American? <laughs> oh, my. Let's see here. It's probably been a decade ago now that the Society for American Archaeology did a, a survey and discovered that more Americans know where Angkor Wat is in Cambodia than have ever heard of Cahokia here in North America. So for the average American, our books generally are completely new about cultures that they have had no clue exist. So this would not be something that's covered in the public school curriculum, primary school, high school? Otis, you might have mention in, in a high school education of the existence of a place like Cahokia or maybe Chaco Canyon, you'll have some reference to the, the identities of the, the different ethnic identities of the, the people who were in North America at the time that the Europeans arrived. But no, nothing in detail. Uh, okay. In essence, people in North America are living on a continent that is filled with the lost archaeology and it's ours. Do you think it appears in a lot of documentaries, for example, like on the Nat Geo or Discovery History Channel, how much of it is covered on through these medias? Uh, some. What would be some of the things that would be covered and what would not be covered? One of the things that, that you have a, a problem with, with media like Nat Geo and History Channel is they're usually out after what is sensational. Yes. Um, the other thing that, that you have is a limited format. And if you've ever written a teleplay, you really don't have much 
that you can actually say in that short period of time. And then if you have commercials thrown in, it's even less. So you're getting about the same amount of, of time, maybe 15 minutes, to discuss a cultural phenomenon as, as complex as Cahokia. How on earth can you do that? Right, yeah. I think also there's the sensationalist part as well, which some things may not be considered uh, exciting enough. Uh, for example, how did people live their everyday lives? Some of these things may not be as spectacular as look at that monument, whereas the monument is actually the irregular thing. And that house that people lived in, that was a very common thing. And as an archaeologist myself, that's more interesting for me to see, oh, how were these people living? What did they do every day? What was common things? Because the way that the maybe the nobility lived or the or that that one monument, that was the odd thing out. And it is interesting, but I think that also a lot of these documentaries, they will focus on the spectacular, as you said, and they may not focus on the day-to-day lives, which I think are actually more important for understanding of people than the odd thing out. Now, if you're a novelist, like Kathleen and I are, you have to have a little bit of everything. Um, I mean, if writing a novel is writing conflict, novels are always conflict. If you don't have a, a villain, which isn't necessarily human, it can be an environmental villain, it can be um, a, a, a collapse, it can be climatic, it can be wildlife. There's there's all kinds of different villains, but you have to have that initial sense of conflict. Otherwise, the novel itself does not work. And one of the things you have to understand about doing any kind of fiction or television is that it is part of the entertainment business, but if you're going to do it as a novel... You must serve three different masters. The first one, of course, is the story. What's the story? What do the characters want? Who are they? What do they want? What are they willing to do to get it? What's the setting? If it's Chaco Canyon uh, and and you're setting it at 1150 AD, obviously you're in the middle of of a climatic episode, you're, you have a 30-year drought, you have all kinds of social upheaval, you have essentially the end of the Chacoan system, breakdowns, you have the cannibalism showing up, warfare, people being displaced, other people who are actually managing to hang on. I mean, th- there's a huge complexity to making that great story. The second master you must serve is The science is the archaeology. It's the discipline and the data. If you are true to the the profession and the discipline, you you can't pull stuff just out of the air. Everything that, that you do has to be researched. It has to be willing to pass peer review. I mean, they may not like it. Um, you know, they may not, your colleagues may not agree with your interpretation but you have to be able to base it on the data. This is, is what the, the raw data show. This is how we interpret it. This is how, given what we know about uh, 
kinship systems, given what we know about subsistence, given what we know from the uh, the phytoliths, given what's coming out of the, the fire pits from resource utilization. All of this stuff comes together, and this is how we interpret it for the story. The third master that you have to serve is actually the publishing industry. And, I mean, that's that's one of those nasty things that comes along. Uh, it'd be great to be altruistic, but if you are, nobody's no publisher is going to buy your book. They're not going to publish it. No one will ever read it. So you have to, to have this, this constant, careful balancing between story, data, and the, the needs of the publisher. I think the second one you mentioned is also, I think, in, in academic archaeology and in other, if you, not always will people agree with your interpretations. And I've sometimes even seen very heated debates from people with different, uh, different interpretations of, of some phenomenon. But I mean, in in all cases, like they they weren't just pulling an idea out of their head. They were basing it on information. But I've particularly seen it in in the social sciences. I don't know if it's really how common it is, but I I've seen people have some very emotional debates about uh, their interpretation of of one phenomena or another. So you worked for quite a while as an archaeologist, as a field archaeologist. You were working. A lot in the southwest? Yeah, mostly uh, the the Rocky Mountain West from Montana, North Dakota, down into Utah. How and why did you transition into becoming a writer? Passion. To write was always my passion. And to tell you the truth, it, part of it, Otis, was communication. I mean, anthropology is neat. It's fascinating. Uh, archaeology, going out on locating sites, excavating. I mean, you're uncovering, let's say, a 5,000-year-old archaeological living floor, and you're the first human being in 5,000 years to see that living floor in the bottom of that, that house pit where, where the fire pit is. If you just close your eyes, suddenly it's burning again. And where the flake scatter is over in the corner, that's where, where the old man is, is busy crafting a biface. And you know, the little kids are crawling up and down. You can just see this, you know, that the grandkids are crawling up and down in his lap, driving him crazy while he's laughing, telling him a story. And the two women are over by the groundstone working on, on orizopsis seeds, processing orizopsis seeds or, or pine nuts or whatever. And it just comes alive. And to tell you the truth, quite honestly, Kathy was involved with the, the federal government. She was uh, a tri-state coal archaeologist for Nebraska, Wyoming, and Kansas. And some of the things that were happening with the government, you know, I mentioned earlier, um, people didn't understand the value of the archaeology. And ultimately, Otis, all archaeology is publicly funded when you parse it down to its roots. So to give people a better understanding of the value of the resource, we started writing the books. We did them as novels because that's what our passion was, was to write, especially fiction, and also because in a novel you can make these cultures come alive in a way that you cannot in nonfiction. 
I suppose that as archaeologists, in a way, we're all storytellers. Hopefully, we're telling a true story. Hopefully, we're telling an accurate story. But we are looking at things and we're putting it together how we think it was. And in a way, we're telling stories. So I think it's an interesting a transition from being one person who's making an interpretation and in a way telling a story to another person who is taking that story and giving it to a specific audience who will enjoy hearing it. I think that the storyteller is probably one of the oldest activities that we have. I think that as humans, we like to hear a story. And I think that in this case, it's very interesting because it's hopefully it's a story that's realistic and hopefully it's one that people are actually learning from and not just reading it just for past the time, but maybe they're learning something, which I think is actually one of the reasons that people tell stories anyways, is you're learning something from it. In this case, we're learning facts. So I think it's an interesting career change, which may seem very different, but I think there's actually some overlaps between being an a writer of fiction, and being an archaeologist. Yeah, well, we're all interested in, in filling in the blanks, and, and ultimately what, what drives us is that question of who were these people? I mean, why did they, they live here? Why did they leave here? Why was this, this, this Pueblo burned? Uh, it's, it's a tie to the past, and if you do not know where it is that you came from, it's really difficult to put a, a finger on where you can possibly be going. Have you ever read Jared Diamond's book, Collapse? Yes. What did you think about his ideas about how environment played a role in the collapse of the Puebloan cultures in this region? Yeah, well, I, he's a geographer by, by trade, and I don't necessarily hold that against him, but I, I do take issue with some of his his understanding of the actual data i mean sure environment always plays a role we we watch this over and over and over whether we're talking about harappan civilization whether we're talking about sumer whether we're talking about chaco or the lowland maya or cahokia or even rome in the fifth century Uh, environment climate soil use resources all of this plays a constant uh, pattern. I mean, you have nice climate, warm, wet, crops grow, population grows, uh, surplus, surplus food allows specialization, and population continues to grow, climate changes, we go into it to a drought period, you can't feed all the people, the system breaks uh, again, and of course, Kathy and I rely a great deal on deprivation theory, which I don't even think is taught anymore. I mean, this is Ralph Linton and David Aberley and Anthony F. C. Wallace, uh, and what happens to social systems, the dynamics of, of social systems that are under stress, and lo and behold, after having studied and written about the collapse of cultures all of our lives, you know, all of a sudden we're watching 7.8 billion people is maybe the, the latest estimate living on just in time resources with the climate changing. And now all of a sudden a pandemic. Wow. Scary stuff. 
Yeah, I think that we often see things that will repeat. Uh, they may not be the exact thing that repeat, but phenomena will repeat. Reactions to phenomena will often be similar. It's an interesting thing that we, a lot of uh, Europe, a lot of North America, uh, we think of time as being very linear. You go from A to B to C to D. Some people think things get better as you progress. Some people recognize that that's not always so. But in some other cultures, they think about time as being circular. And it's not always just one circle. There may be various cycles all working together, like some big cycles, some small cycles, things that will constantly repeat. And I think that's a very interesting way to think about time. Because in some ways, that is a, it's a realistic way of looking at time, that we do have chronology. But within this chronology, a lot, there's a lot of stuff that keeps repeating over and over. Uh, something's not so obvious, like, yes, the year and the day, these are very obvious things that repeat. But a lot of social phenomena, a lot of long-term environmental things, and they eventually happen again. And if you know what happened the last time these things happened, you may be able to change the way they happen the next time. This is something why I'm very interested in history and, I th and why I think that it's very important that history, in the larger sense, is taught and that people are familiar with it, not just very recent events, because if you just look at recent events, you may not be looking at some of these cycles that repeat. But yeah, the interaction with the environment is, I think, something which has repeated in various parts of the world, various locations. Also, as you're saying about how as resources increase, you get more possible craft specialization. And also when the environment may not support or when something else makes that they can't support, you get a decrease in population or a change in society. I don't know if always the term collapse is correct because people may think a collapse is something completely falls apart and then you're left with something inferior. But a lot of times, what is a collapse is a particular part of a system stops being efficient and a new one is adopted. And people think, well, you know, everything progresses from bad to good to even better. And when you have a collapse, it's, you're just going back to something that was bad. But actually, when these civilization or a society, one aspect of it collapses, what it's actually doing is it's adapting to a more efficient method. This is my view on it and why it's important that we look at other systems of doing things. Yeah. You know, I really think that, that you would enjoy and deeply appreciate the Mayan calendar. Uh, you might want to take a, a look at, at that, especially talking about time being circles within circles and the incredible mathematics that they had putting that together to say, yep, this is the world being reborn over and over again. Hindus did some, something, you know, very, very similar. When did you start writing the first North American series? That would be in the, I think, 1989 or 1990 was People of the Wolf. Yeah, it, that actually started in 1987. Um, we had, Kathy and I were living in a cabin in the mountains in Colorado with no running water, a two-hole outhouse, but we a wood stove, and we did have electricity for lights and computers. And things had gotten pretty grim, and Bill Davis over at Abajo Archaeology called us up and said, hey, I, I really need 
hands, can you come and, and help us dig? We're, we need to test a bunch of archaeological sites for the highway department. So Kathy and I loaded up. We went, had a delightful month and a half out in the field, just digging test pits and excavating, recording things. When we got back, an, an editor from New York, an editor friend of ours called up and said, where have you been? And we said, oh, we were out in Utah and we found what we think is a 6,000-year-old pit house and we found this and we found these Fremont sites. And he said, why are you not writing this? And our reply was, well, our literary agent said that if we wrote North American fiction, she wouldn't sell it that the only thing that she was interested in or any publisher was in interested in was the prehistory of Europe. Could we be Gene Owl? Hmm. And said, so, well, yeah, Michael, she won't sell it. He says, well, I want, you, I want it. You write it. I'll buy it. In fact, here's what I envision. He says, I, I want a hefty book that I can put in my hefty bag and walk the hefty streets of New York with that starts with the people coming across the Bering Strait, and then each of the major characters is uh, responsible, goes off to, to found one of the language groups, and at the end of the book, there's a ship sitting out in the harbor on the East Coast. Now, Otis, we were starving to death at this point in time. You were the literal starving artist. Very much so. Yes, and so <laughs> here we are. Um, you want us to, to to cover at that time we were thinking between twelve and thirteen thousand years of prehistory in an entire continent involving you know, two hundred and some separate languages that covers the entire continent. Okay, we're we're happy to write it. It will have a plot like the phone book, but you send us a check, we'll do it. And so. It was about that time that you started writing People of the Wolf, or did you have a plan to write a, the whole series at that point? Well, when when Michael got that perspective on the immensity of North American archaeology, he said, what would it take? And we went ahead and pitched him six novels and said, look, we want to do People of the Wolf, which would be the entry, the first uh, humans coming into North America, uh, want to do something early archaic, middle archaic, uh, touch a couple of the high points like Cahokia and the Hopewell, maybe do a Chumash book. And so of those original six novels, he bought all six. We wrote People of the Wolf, and in writing it, now keep in mind, this is in, in 19, we actually did the writing for that in 1987, March of 1987. And the data that we had, I mean, people at that point in time were still, you know, stuck on, on the ice-free corridor. There just wasn't much. So to create the plot for the book, we looked at creation stories from all over North America and kind of wove those together as the foundation for the plot. So that was in 1987, I guess. Yeah. You published in 1990 or 1989. I, I'm not sure. I can't remember the year when People of the Wolf was published. It would have been like a, several years after Gene All had published Clan of the Cave Bear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was June of 1990. And 
it, it came out originally just in paperback and, and went into six printings in the first 30 days. I think in the 90s, there were some other books that were, I'm absolutely sure they were influenced by Gene All's books. They, they also took place in the, the deep prehistory of Europe, perhaps with Neanderthals, perhaps with Cro-Magnon. So I can see how another editor might be interested in saying, well, let's let's jump on the bandwagon there. I think also William Sutterbund wrote a series of books in, um, I think it was in the 90s. I think it was the early 90s. They were all about yeah. the first people coming in from Alaska. But it was only that period. I don't think any other time periods but I think it might have been about the same time, the early 90s. It was exactly the same time. William Saraband is actually a, a pen name, and it, it was a woman who wrote those. But let me tell you a, a quick anecdote is that at that time, uh, prehistory was doing really big. The People of the Wolf had, was doing well. Um, I, Corridor of Storms, which was the Saraband book, was doing very well. So every publisher on earth decided that they needed to have a prehistory series. And Kathy and I had been, we were off at uh, a book festival in Florida. And uh, a, an author walked up to us, who I think will remain nameless for, for the purpose of this program. And she said, oh, I'm glad to meet you. I am just got signed by, I think it was Random House, to write their prehistory series. And we said, oh, did you? Congratulations. And she said, oh, she says, I just love it because you don't have to do any research. You can make up anything you want to because nobody knows anything about it. So, yeah, I am just so delighted with this. And, I mean, Kathy and I were appalled and horrified, um, you know, because Jean Al, when she started this, I mean, she did her research. She may not have been a, an anthropologist, but she read the literature. Um, you know, Linda Lay Schuler also read the liter literature when she did She Who Remembers. But there was this entire whole crowd of romance authors that publishers hired to write their prehistory series. And of course, Otis, they, they flopped horribly. Uh, they flopped so horribly that they pretty much killed the genre. Well, it reminds me a lot of these shows that you'll see now on uh, the History Channel where they're presenting it as history or as a documentary, but they're horribly researched. And I think for the average public, if you haven't studied it, you don't know, like, is that real or how much of that is made up? And I think it really hurts the people who really are doing the background research and stuff to produce something of quality that's not only entertaining, but also informative when you get people who will just say, oh, well, I can make up anything because the reader won't know the difference. Oh, it just, uh, sometimes it gives me a headache thinking about, about how many people do that. Well, even, even worse, Otis, is some of it is dangerous, especially the ancient aliens craze that's going on right now. Oh, yeah. Because if you parse that down to the underlying assumption... The, the underlying assumption is that these native peoples, wherever they were, anywhere across the world, were so absolutely stupid and incompetent that the only way that you can explain any 
of the things that they did is through the intervention of aliens. And that is about the most insidious form of racism I can think of. Yeah, I think it also underplays even the, the basic creative ability of any human. And to say that people couldn't have figured it out it is quite insulting. Yeah, well, anyway, that, that gets my fangs to growing and, and my eyes turn red and my ears blow and, and I start hissing a lot. No tolerance for it. No tolerance whatsoever. Are there some other authors that write about historic fiction or prehistoric fiction that you think really were well-researched? You mentioned uh, that Jean All had done her research. To... Are there some other authors that you think actually did do a good job of, of doing their background work? Oh, yeah. Uh, especially Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, uh, who wrote uh, Animal Wife and Reindeer Moon, uh, Bjorn Curtin, who did, uh, what was it, Eye of the Tiger, uh, Sue Harrison, who did a, a series of, of books on the Aleut. She actually lived with, with the Aleut for, oh my God, what was it, four or five years. So, I mean, she, she knew whereof she wrote. Um, yeah, there are, are those authors out there who have, have done the research, who have, have taken the time and really produced quality material. A lot of your novels are set in North American prehistory. Why did you decide to write about this time and place? Otis, North American prehistory is the archaeology of the lost continent. We know more about the prehistory of Africa. We know a great deal more about the prehistory of, of Europe, China, Cambodia than we have and have no clue whatsoever about what's in our backyards under our feet. You know, the idea that, that more Americans know where Angkor Wat is than Cahokia is still, even this far down the road, still absolutely baffling and, and appalling. So, yes, we write about North America because it's our archaeology, and no one except archaeologists have any clue about its complexity, the richness of the heritage that we have here, or even how much it, it's foundational to the American identity. Do you think a lot of it is because of what's left out of the history books? Well, the reason why we have the, this lack of understanding ha has a long and complex history. In the first place, if you go back to early European exploration, I mean, yeah, Kathy and I did a, a trilogy of books on the, the DeSoto Entrada, uh, told from the perspective of the native people. And you read the DeSoto journals, and these people were monsters, absolute monsters that, that were let loose in North America. The good news is, is that our people here did what the Inca, the Aztecs, and the Maya could not. They completely destroyed the finest Spanish army that had ever been fielded to date. But that gets left out of the books, too. So you have that original European attitude, uh, coupled with the fact that by the time that scholars got here who could record anything about the native people, we were already well into the American epidemic. And keep in mind that within about 100 years of contact, roughly 90% of the people were dead, of Native American people were dead. So when Europeans did finally begin going into the continent, 
what they found was essentially wilderness. I mean, think about North America today if 90% of the population died. What would you see in 100 years? Oh, yeah, definitely. I can imagine. I mean, we're already shut down and, and staggering over, over uh, the COVID-19. And, it, and it's hardly a virulent epidemic. It, it, this is hardly a virulent virus compared to things like smallpox or uh, these early diseases where they were killing off 90% of the people. I mean, that's a, an incredible mortality rate. So Europeans come into North America after the big civilizations are gone, where Kusa is gone, Kofita Cheki is gone. Uh, all of the, the big Mississippian kingdoms are gone. Same thing is happening in Mexico, by the way, although there's gold down there, so there's more people to record it. Now, coupled with that, you have people like William Bartran coming through, and all he's finding are ruins. Uh, when you add in the complexity that, especially on the East Coast, which was what was explored first by the Europeans, those people built out of wood and thatch. And had they built out of stone instead, we would have a very different interpretation. Okay, next problem with the historiography is that most of the early relationships with Europeans and native peoples was pretty much hostile. Um, granted, both sides are at fault with this. A really good book, and I, I recommend that anyone who is interested in, in North American contact period read is uh, Robbie Ethbridge's uh, From Chicasa to Chickasaw. And she talks about the entire shatter zone, the Native American slave trade, in which Native Americans were just every bit as, as complicit as the Spanish, the English, and the French. So then you have mythology from Europe, uh, started by a guy by the name of Joachim de Fior, who said that North America was the Garden of Eden. And so you had people who had European roots believed that their culture, their religion actually was started here. Uh, and as a result of that, you have people like the, the Mormons, who when Joseph Smith uh, begins the religion. Yeah, he places that Eden here, and therefore all of the monuments that he's seeing have to be from the original lost tribes of Israel. Uh, the idea too that because Native Americans that that are being uh, encountered don't have sophisticated cultures, ninety percent of them died a hundred years before. Uh, Obviously, they couldn't have built these things. So, you know, you have people saying, well, it's Madoc, it's Phoenicians, it's everybody on Earth. Everybody except the local people who are there. Yeah. And they had created an entire mythology. And then the, the final part of the puzzle is that archaeologists themselves are responsible for a lot of this. Because we do not write for the public. What we do is... We, we write this stuff in an extraordinarily arcane language, put it in small journals that nobody sane would ever dare read. And, yeah, we always say that the quickest route to suicide is to sit back and read archaeological reports for all of your life. 
Well, I guess up until recently, even a lot of those wouldn't have been available to the general public. Not unless you could go to the university library or in some cases a public office and get copies of those journals. Yeah, and there's always interlibrary loan. I mean, Kathy and I have survived in tiny little Thermopolis, Wyoming. But you would have to know that they exist. You have to know that they exist, and you have to be able... I mean, seriously, the terminology that we use as professionals just does not translate to the public. I mean, we're, we're very poor. If we have one absolute failing as a discipline, it's the ability to relate our information to a willing public. I mean, my God, Otis, we, we have 17 million books in print, most of them on North American archaeology. That indicates that there's a huge hunger out there. When Kathy and I are out on book tour, people want to know. At least 50% of the American and Canadian populations want to know about the archaeology. They don't want to know about statistical seriations of potsherds. They don't want to know about stratigraphic microanalysis. They're, they're, they could really you know, care less about uh, tertiary flake debitage. What they want to know is who were the people, what did they do, how did they live, what was their life like, what happened to them. I was talking to someone recently and we were saying about how there was a lot of uh, a lot of fictional stuff which is presented as factual. For example, what you see on the Discovery Channel and the History Channel. And people will watch it, though, because they want to know. And if there's nothing else, if there's no better produced show, they'll watch that. In some other countries, you do get a better portrayal of archaeology, but people want to know. So if the only people producing media about history, about prehistory, are essentially charlatans who are producing these faux documentaries, that's what people will consume. And I think that as archaeologists, or as academics in general, we need to contribute in some way to giving something that the public can relate to and say, here's in a format, here's a television series, here are books, whether fictional or, or not, which accurately portray history, which portray prehistory. And then people have an option. They can watch what's on the History Channel, or they can watch another documentary, which seems to be more realistic. So I think it is a responsibility that we have to produce stuff that the public can consume in some format or another. Oh, yeah. Uh, Of course, Kathy and I have been arguing this now for 20... I think the first paper we presented at SAA was back in Pittsburgh in 90 two or 93, whenever that, that meeting was, uh, that was at that same time that I was telling you, we had this, this craze with publishers, finding authors, finding romance authors to write prehistory. And at the time, uh, we presented several of the books and said, listen, um, if we do not write this, these other people will. And it's over the years, there's periodic calls within within the academy saying, yeah, well, we really have to do a better job. We really do. 
And I mean, even then, some people like think of, of poor Brian Fagan, who was you know more or less pilloried because he was writing nonfiction for public consumption. Um, this is something that archaeologists themselves are responsible for not following up on. It gets lip service, still does. I mean, um, I think I sent you a reference on the uh, archaeological record from from the SAA with that excellent article um, by by Fagan and, and his co-author there. But quite honestly, I don't see the the discipline changing. Uh, talking to another anthropologist. Uh, she writes under the name Ellison Cooper. Uh, she does thrillers, and we were having lunch in New York at Thriller Fest last year, and she said, you know, quite honestly, I think archaeology and anthropology are dying. Do you ever watch some of the videos that are produced on YouTube regarding history and archaeology? Some. Um, you know, we, we get exposed to those. We have to do four hours of social media every day. And, of course, generating content. Uh, Kathy does all the, the Twitter at, at Gear Books. And so we get a lot of the YouTube archaeology there. I see there's quite a mix. Some of it is, again, these uh, conspiracy theories that are some of them, they should be filed under science fiction or fantasy. Uh, but then you will also get ones that are really well done. And I've seen even some, I think they're undergraduate students producing videos. Some of them, they're just they're talking. Some of them will intersperse it with photos. Some of them will go out and do sometimes some videos of places or excavations. Some of it is really well done. It's informative. It's real. But then it's a total mix. You'll also get the really weird stuff on there that clearly it's spectacular, but it's science fiction, really. How does your education experience as an archaeologist influence your writing Oh, it's, it's everything. Um, and keep in mind that both Kathleen and I were trained as anthropologists first and archaeologists second. So our approach to each of these books is as a cultural whole. Now, you know, Kathy's background is also uh, you know, heavily influenced with comparative religion. Uh, as well as Native American history. So she comes at it with a, a slightly different slant than I do with a, a background, particularly in, in physical anthropology, and an emphasis on, on that, uh, archaeology and, and cultural anthropology secondarily. But if you do not have a grounding in kinship systems, in method and theory, in understanding uh, resource utilization and understanding uh, cultural histories, understanding bringing all of those aspects of what makes culture economic anthropology, symbolic anthropology, um, anthropology of religion, uh, definitely uh, physical anthropology, under understanding biologically what, what happens to people. Um, paleopathology was, was a big part of my education, so understanding what it was that they suffered from. All of that has to be brought in and integrated. And when you write a novel, you, you, you can't simply say, well, um, we're not really sure what this particular ceremonial um, 
symbolism might represent. Uh, we will await further work before we write another novel. <laughs> so what you have to do is you kind of have to grasp at straws sometimes. You have to put the system together. You can't just stop because part of a, a, a resource base is fragmentary. You have to make it all work. You have to take what, what's, in essence, fragments of a, of a torn-up black-and-white photograph and turn it into a, a full-length feature film with color and sound. And you have to make it in a, in a way that people are going to find interesting to read as well. Oh, yeah. And like with the, the Cahokia novels, we're just so indebted to uh, what's going on with Mississippian archaeology and iconography these days with people like George Langford and, and Kent Riley III and the uh, Grieber and all of the work that they're doing, actually recreating the cosmological system that was integral to every single culture in the American Southeast. I mean, it, it's marvelous, marvelous stuff and fascinating. And, and if we only had more, in your stories, you often integrate knowledge about prehistoric events, lifestyles, skills, and other aspects of daily life of people in history. You also incorporate ideas such as belief and oral traditions of the people in the novels. What are your primary source of information for these details? Oh boy, everywhere. Um, okay, some of this stuff is comes from recorded sources. Uh, people like Swanton, the original uh, ethnographers. Some of it comes out of historical works like Adair. Uh, you mine every early primary source that you can get for the original tales, uh, folklore studies. Uh, we have lots of, of informant people that we talk to. I don't I hate calling them informants. They're really friends. We have, have friends in the Native community who tell us things that not all of which goes into the books. Um, some, some stories that, that we have to use for the books, we're not allowed to. So we have to make up something similar which reflects the same spiritual value but does not um, compromise the, the promise and the, the integrity of the actual original story. Other, we also use a great deal of, of uh, studies of, of comparative religion. Uh, for example, understanding how shamanism actually works. You, you have to read Marcia Iliada. You have to understand what the basics are. You have to have an understanding of Claude Levi-Strauss and uh, Durkheim and, and symbolism and understanding how the religious mind functions. Uh, so there's ethnographic analogy there it's just this this huge um broad basis of, of information that you have to kind of pull together and see if it fits for the kind of culture that that you're using uh, yeah i mentioned the iconography studies um you know stories reflected from from rock art from statuary it, it's just you're pulling from a, a huge, huge, huge sea of, of material to try and make the best interpretation that you can for the limited archaeology. Uh, for example, notions of soul. 
in the Western tradition, uh, we always think of people as only having one soul. And you get into to different Native American traditions. Um, people like like uh, Shoshone, for example, think that you have three souls. You have the dream soul, you have the, the, the life soul, and, and you have the bone soul. Um, we were doing a book called People of Lightning on Windover Pond when that was still fresh in the news. And we got into this huge argument, Kathy and I did, over, well, whose model of soul do we use, given what we're seeing reflected in burial traditions in Windover Pond? And we ended up with, with the, the Calusa notion of, of three souls, and instead of like the Tequesta notion of five and, and on and on and on. So it's, there, there's some picking and choosing that you have to make. And periodically, we get hit by our colleagues saying, well, you know, this is way out of line, to which our response is, well, go ahead and test it with field data. Um, and if you really dislike our interpretation, please, please write your own novel. No one takes us up on that. I'm interested in the part about how you incorporate oral history. So not necessarily sacred ideas but ideas of the past. A lot of times when we're thinking about history, what we're talking about is written history or stuff which has written documents about events or about people and, and things like this. But a lot of times when we think about history, we overlook the fact that not all history is written down. Some of it is passed on through oral tradition. With oral tradition, sometimes it's a different mechanism than when you have... Uh, written history uh, and it does serve a purpose of telling the past but a lot of times this is overlooked when we're thinking of what is history and we're thinking written history there's some people that are working on this they're trying to think about oral history that you could hear today that there's a person alive today that could tell about the past and they're thinking about this but it's something that's often overlooked how do you incorporate that into your stories what aspects of oral history have you incorporated into some of your books? Yeah, well, in like People of the Lakes, um, it was oral history that, that went into the to the actual foundation of that story of the mask of many colored crow. I mean, um, especially to the Iroquois books, uh, beginning with People of the Longhouse, Dawn Country, Broken Land, uh, People of the Night Sun. All of that was or so much of that was from oral history. I mean, we, we told that like we learned it from uh, different Haudenosaunee people in New York. Because like, you have, keep in mind, this is in the, the 1400s. This is the foundation of the, the great Iroquois Great League of Peace. And so much of that, I mean, God bless you, Mike Tarbo, if you're listening to that. You you made those books work, um, so a big chunk of that that plot for that quartet of novels all came from from stuff that we heard from Iroquois people. Columns. When I said Haudenosaunee, that's that's the Iroquois name for themselves. Do you think that when you hear the oral histories, that there are specific ideas that are more central than others that are more key to the story elaborate on that to 
by by what you mean by more central? Well, sometimes, for example, you'll hear maybe the same story or what's essentially the same story. You might hear it told by four or five different people. And you know it's basically the same story because most of the elements were the same. Some of the elements almost never change. Some of them, you may get a bit of variation, particularly if you're if it's told over a large geographic area. And some of the, the things always change. Like maybe the names of people always change. Or there may be one character who always has specific characteristics or there's specific events which every time someone tells the story, they're nearly identical. These maybe serve a purpose or they, they are more central to the story. They're, they're things which they don't get changed because they were more important. Oh, yeah, yeah. Otis, this is, it's fascinating. There, we do historiography on a lot of these stories, especially when we were doing the Iroquois books, coming back to them again. And you can hear the stories as they are told today and follow them back because they have been recorded, written down over the years. And you can follow some of these back almost 200 years. And it's essentially the same story, but you can tell like when the the, the Christian influence came in, when uh, one of the central characters was changed from a woman to a man, when they were dealing with with white culture and uh, because women were considered inferior by by white Europeans. Uh, They made this chief suddenly, 50 years later, the story's being told, and uh, a chief who was uh, once a woman is now a man. So, I mean, you can can follow. They all have essentially a, a history and a life of their own when you get back into the actual literature and then follow it up to the story in the modern day. Do you incorporate some of these changes into the stories or do you try to determine what do you think was the original story? Because we're, sometimes we're looking at things maybe that occurred 500 years ago or sometimes even thousands. There's, there are some things in oral tradition that they're essentially describing things that happened thousands of years ago. Do you try to get back to the original or do you sometimes work the changes into it as well? Absolutely. It well it depends on on what you're doing with the novel, but we're almost always trying to get to the original. And this this is why I say it, it's so important for um, for people who are, are writing about these cultures to do things like read Mercia Iliada, where they have gone. Joseph Campbell, to a lesser extent, where the mythologists have gone back and done comparative studies. I mean, this this is straight out of George Murdoch and the Human Relations Area File. But when you look at, for example, the, the pan-circumpolar uh, um, shamanism, and there are characteristics which are common from Norse culture all the way across Northern Europe, through Siberia, um, to the to the Inuit in, in Helmut and other people like that. The essence of the story, when you cook it down, just like Claude Levi Strauss would, is the same story. Some of the names are different, you know, lots of the events are different, but the same conclusion happens. I mean it's it's an underlying fundamental. Uh, I wouldn't go quite so far as uh 
to, to say that, that it, it's a, an underlying mandala. But yeah, there are, there are certain stories that are the same across the globe. Does that mean it, it goes back tens of thousands of years? Don't know. But it, it's worth always investigating, keeping in mind. It's part of the human condition. I think some of them you could take a guess at how old they might be by looking at where the stories occur today and say, well, when did those peoples split apart? Uh, sometimes even there are different linguistic groups, but the stories themselves are, are very, very similar and they must predate a split of these people. Like you were saying, you see this everywhere in the world. There are people who are looking at this to see when did these ideas split apart? Where did they maybe come from originally? When might they have originally started? But I think it's a, a large amount of work to get back to that. And again, maybe there's, well, sure, there probably is a lot of debate in the end. Okay, I'm going to give you a novelist kind of alternate perspective on this. And that is that as novelists, we sit around and say, well, how many stories are there? Um, the minimum number of, of stories that we that people come up with is four. That there's the redemption story, there's the revenge story, there's the, the, the love story, there's the the, uh, the, the epiphany story that, that essentially covers the four different kinds of, of, of fiction that you can write. And some can take it down to as many as, as 32 different stories. But ultimately, every novel that's written, every story that's told is the same story, just told in a different way. So how many stories actually are there? And I, th God, oh man, you're, you're pressing me now, Otis, you're pressing me. Um, I'm trying to think, yeah, enjoy that. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think, and I think it was Claude Levi-Strauss, and I can't remember how many God, did it go back to Durkheim? Damn. Can't remember. But anyway, they said that there were only a, a certain number of of the stories. I think maybe they may also be categorizing stories. But within these stories, it may be essentially the same idea of a story, but they can actually record real things. They may be recording something for various reasons because it was interesting. And it may be interesting because it fits within one of those types of stories. But I think also sometimes they record important events and it may not be word for word the same, but sometimes stories need to record things. And if they fit within a story type, an accepted story type, maybe it's easier to transmit it to the listener. There may be a limited number of stories or a number of categories of stories, but I think you can make many within those stories and they may each have a different purpose for telling the story or for remembering the story. Oh, yeah, oh, I definitely they do. I mean, well, yeah, I had this conversation with Steve Lexon and he, he brought up the fact that just think about what was happening down at Chaco Canyon and throughout the American Southwest when you had that major eruption 
the created sunset crater. I mean, it, yeah, here's all of a sudden, yeah, there's fire and smoke being shot up in the sky and ashes is, is falling. And you know, these things affect people. Uh, be really great if we could get back and, and hear the stories that they told in Cahokia, because, you know, it really seems like at Cahokia, everything restarts with the Nova in 1054. I mean, that's the critical date. Immediately after that, they level the Great Plaza. They survey where all of the, the major mounds are going to be, and they start building Cahokia. And you have this huge, gigantic, impossible influx of people from five surrounding states who all just pick up their villages, uh, charge off to Cahokia, and help to build this incredible megaplex. I mean, it's what causes people to do that? Why does that happen? You know, you throw in some, some eclipses. Uh, what can you possibly, I mean, all of these things had to have been recorded in the stories if we only had them. Right. I think so, there's been some that are uh, people who, who read the story or, or, or study them, they can place it back to what were they like, for example, if there was a, a volcanic eruption or, or a flooding event or a comet, sometimes they can figure out what the event was describing. But sometimes maybe it was just something interesting. Maybe it was something they wanted to remember. Maybe there was a reason to remember them. And I think that storytelling is one vehicle through which you can get people to remember something which is important, like don't go there for a certain reason. This can happen. Or remember when that event happened a large number of generations past. It's important. Remember it. And not all the details might be important. Some of them are important, and these are the ones that are stressed in some of the stories. Some of them may be inspirational. And I think there are a lot of these inspirational stories throughout the world, and they serve a purpose, not necessarily to remember something specific, but to remind you about a specific way to behave or to think. I'd make a point, too, about oral traditions. Um, we've all heard the story about you know, the, the party game where you start with uh, a, a small story at one end of the room and it goes through 30 people and then the person at the other end of the room has to tell the story and how different it is. And as a result of that, people have always discredited oral tradition among Native people. But what they do not understand is that in almost all of these cultures, the oral tradition had to be learned and memorized almost perfectly. Sure, it's going to change over 100, 150 years, but when you were initiated into to one of these societies or sodalities, you pr usually had to spend a lot of time listening and making sure that you could recite the story perfectly. And sometimes this took years of training and years of practice before you could be initiated to the next level. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about Lakota or Pawnee or, or Pueblo and Kivas or any of the, the, the different lodges among people like, like the Muskogee or the Iroquois. When you learned the stories, it was 
a sacred thing. In, in fact, almost think of the story as being a bundle. And you had to learn the story. You had to learn it properly. You had to learn when you could tell the story, when you could not tell the story. Lots of rules and regulations went along with this thing. It wasn't just what Grandpa said over the fire one night that you're trying to remember 30 years later. It was a discipline. And so oral tradition and these, these sacred stories didn't really change that much over time simply because of the amount of, of study that went in to making sure that the initiates got it right and that they could tell it correctly to their initiates on down the line. These, they have life and power. Yeah, so there's a mechanism to preserve the story or to minimalize how much the story is going to change over time. Very much so. And people were very, very aware of that. I think this is a good point to take a break, but we'll be back shortly. So go refill your cup of coffee, grab a snack, and hurry back for part two of our interview with W. Michael Gear. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, you don't have to be crazy to be an archaeologist, but it helps. <laughs> <laughs>